Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Joanna Scutz. Joanna's first book, A Cultural History Called The Extra Woman, How Marjorie Hillis Led a Generation of Women to Live Alone and Like It, is out now from Live Right Publishing. Joanna is the inaugural Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Postdoctoral Fellow in Women's History at the New York Historical Society, and a contributor to The New Republic, The Guardian, and other publications. She lives in New York. Our conversation was recorded at QED in Astoria, Queens. Joe and I have been friends for almost 10 years, the last few of which she spent working on what would become The Extra Woman. Like so many writing projects, nonfiction book proposals require a huge upfront commitment of time and effort. There is much researching, reporting, and outlining before you even get to writing sample chapters and before you even get to somebody buying your book. Joe did much of this groundwork while finishing her dissertation at Columbia University, where she earned a PhD in literature. It was during her studies, and during a difficult and tumultuous time in her life, that Joe first encountered Marjorie Hillis, an obscure 20th century author who founded her career on the revolutionary idea that women could make their own lives and be the authors of their own happiness. The Extra Woman is a feminist story, but that wasn't how Joe originally approached it. We talk about that process, of figuring out exactly what kind of book you're writing. We also talk about taking what you're doing seriously. That sounds obvious, perhaps, but it's a sneaky thing. When we describe a side project or a new idea as a lark or a pipe dream, we're talking as much to ourselves as to others. As Joe points out, that casual framing can help us at first when we need to get started on an intimidating new endeavor. But after a while, it can also keep us from giving a project the respect and effort it deserves. We discuss how talking about our work affects the way we approach it. We also discuss keeping track and losing track of your research and writing the book you want to read. Realizing that it's real is like in you, it's not in the project. How did you come to Marjorie Hillis as a subject? So it was really a question of what I couldn't find. Um, So I got the book as a gift um, from my oldest friend. Um, I was actually home for Christmas a few years ago, almost 10 years ago now. Um, It was right after my father had died. Um, He died a few weeks before Christmas. And so I flew back to London and I was at home with my mom and Ali, my my good friend who's known me and my family for um, since we were children. She came over and uh, with bottles of wine and a copy of this book that she had found. Um, And I think she found it just online. I'm not sure exactly what her, like it was one of those serendipitous things. And she gave me a copy of this book and I was sort of like, wow, that's kind of harsh. (laughs) The title of this book is Live Alone and Like It, A Guide for the Extra Woman. I was single at the time um, and feeling pretty kind of alone in the world. And but then I started reading it, and we all started reading it, and we were kind of drinking wine and reading passages aloud to each other. And it was this incredible – she has such an incredibly frank and funny voice. It's witty, but it's also very uh, no-nonsense and and practical and kind of – you know, there was a lot of you know, fun retro touches, but there was also a ton of, like, really solid advice. And I was just like – well, now I want to read the book about her. I want to find the, you know, the biography of this person. And I went online and there was nothing. There was no Wikipedia entry for her. There was barely, I found like a blog post that mentioned the book, um, the few little snippets. Um, and so it just became 
this thing I was kind of starting to investigate um, and it really kind of snowballed from there. Did she strike you and and the advice that she gave, did it strike you as very contemporary? One thing that is so striking to me in reading the book is how uh, so many of the issues that she's talking about, she's just kind of finding different scenarios and different language to talk about scenarios that we still encounter as women today. Yeah, it was really surprising to me how little emphasis there was on um, trying to find a man or trying to make a failing relationship work. She has a the way the book is put together is these chapters deal with different subjects and then she has a whole bunch of case studies in each chapter that kind of prove the the point and the case studies were you know so often she had someone who was you know stuck in a miserable marriage and then just finally got divorced and moved to a, moved to a different city and got a job and got an apartment and was so much happier doing that and there was so much emphasis on on figuring out your own path and figuring out like for women what they wanted to do and what really made them happy that yeah i was i was impressed by how little little she seemed little sort of stock she seemed to put in you know the happy ending with the man you know that just wasn't the ending of most of these stories and it was surprising to me not really being a student of that era of history, that divorce wasn't actually that taboo of a subject when she was writing. Is that, or maybe at some point, I I think in like the 30s, there's discussion of like, you know, her views were pretty in keeping, being kind of tolerant of of divorce was pretty in keeping. Yeah, it was definitely, um, you know, you have these moments in history of sort of divorce panic. And um, there's definitely one in the 20s because divorce gets much more, much easier and less punitive for women. Um, They start being able to keep custody of their children, which was not the norm before about the early 20s. And so there's a spike in divorce and consequently a whole panic about the breakdown of the family, as always sort of happens. But by the 30s, it's sort of leveling off a little bit. And it's also one of the impacts of the Depression is that women and men alike are sort of delaying marriage. Um, The sort of rush to marriage isn't as um, intense as it is in more prosperous periods. Like it's kind of accepted that marriage is expensive, you know, moving out of your family home to set up home together is expensive now. And it was much more expensive then. And so it's a kind of, it's understood that you wouldn't, you know, that there was a, both parties had to figure out a way to make their own money. It's kind of a different, um, you know, the, the depression kind of shook up a lot of those arrangements. So Divorce, yeah, and then and then after the after the war, um, after World War Two, it becomes there's a sort of panic again about because um, there's another huge spike in divorce um, because all the people who rushed into marriage right before the men shipped out overseas, when they came home, a lot of those marriages broke down very quickly, and so there's another spike and another panic. But in the 30s, I think she's uh, quite pragmatic about it. Um, understands that divorce is a painful but sometimes necessary corrective to an unhappy marriage and that an unhappy marriage is worse. So I think in that sense she's, again, I think the pragmatism is what I really responded to in her. Yeah, yeah. And I was really impressed with the way she kind of thread the needle of, you know, because she says outright, I'm not 
I'm not advocating for this lifestyle above all other lifestyles, but you're probably going to find yourself in it at one point. And, you know, but so, so she, she really does a nice kind of linguistic job of, of, of advocating for independence and then also saying, but if you find yourself in this relationship, then, you know, here's how to kind of preserve yourself with it. And she kind of lets everybody have a piece. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely becomes as, as the book got more popular and sort of was clearly being read by people who were not living alone. She sort of found a way to sort of expand that message and include in the concept of the live aloner people who were not in that exact situation, but kind of had had those principles of independence, um, wanted to find a way to forge their path, um, sort of whatever their relationships were, which I think is, again, a very modern idea that you have a, at least for you know for a lot of us like the idea that you you figure out what you want to do with your life and then a family is a part of it but it's not the end goal you know it's not the only thing that you're trying to do you do a really tremendous job in the book of really filling in the context of the social history that she's in and the kind of other movements that are happening on her, that are happening around her, and even you know the way film is kind of echoing things that are happening around you know political and social issues of the time, um, which seemed first of all just like a tremendous amount of work. So I want to talk to you about how that research process uh, kind of kind of expanded. But uh, I wonder too, you know, when you, especially when you start thinking about her later on in her career in the same breaths as like. Betty Friedan and you know Helen Gurley Brown. Did you do you feel like she was a subversive writer in the end? Like was she? Do you think that she uh, kind of used a, a very clever platform to sort of infiltrate the mainstream with a certain message? <laughs> I think. I mean, I think so. I think she gets more radical, or she, you know, it's weird. I think that her message is very consistent, but the culture gets so much more conservative around her. So she was. You know, she has her heyday in the late 1930s and then um, makes her comeback or sort of writes her, you know, her sort of return to publishing in the early 50s when just after she is widowed. And her, but that book, which talks to widows and divorcees, um, is a really kind of, it's really revisiting the same um, kind of, messages before but the even the idea in the, in 1951 of putting widows and divorcees in the same breath and sort of treating them in the same way um is i think pretty surprising because that divorce panic that we were talking to talking about is really in the ascendant in the early 50s and there's a huge worry about and stigma kind of building up around divorce at that time and of course you're sailing into the 50s when divorce rates go down a lot but and then there's such a kind of marriage pressure that I talk about you know people getting married younger and younger and that you know that's the sort of the the picture of the 50s that we all know but it's not you know it's not a revert you know what was surprising to me in this research is that this isn't the 50s weren't normal right we weren't going back to something that we had that was normal or traditional. Um, it gets described that way, but the 50s were very new. The 50s were a strange 
aberrant decade in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think that um, for Marjorie Hillis, you know, it's it's really surprising how I was reading reviews of her 1951 book, which is called You Can Start All Over, and her comparing them to her 1930s um, reviews. And it was surprising how much more judgmental, how much more kind of you know, people really did not want to hear from a widowed woman about how widows could be happy or how divorced women could be happy. I mean, she really, that book is very much aimed at older women as well. Um, she's really not talking as much to young young widows or young divorcees with young children. So because she recognizes that if you have little kids, your life is sort of consumed by them in a way that they're just not. If you have grown children or no children and you're 50, 60, 70 and you're widowed and divorced, I think what's really radical is she says you get to have a life. You get to have a pleasure-filled, independent, self-directed life at 75 just as much as you do at 25. And that still seems to me to be kind of radical. Yeah. And it's really shocking, you know, to put yourself, to try to put yourself back in that space away from the kind of media oversaturation moment that we have right now and just think about, you know, her being more or less the only voice saying that. Yeah. And I think it's really, uh, you know, you the the writing that she's doing on the, um, you know, as the feminist movement gets going, um, her final book uh, was published in 1967. And that's a kind of a sort of a swan song that sort of, but it goes back to a lot of her earlier messages. And she was then, um, you know, she's really talking to women, you know, retirement age, you know, women who are grandmothers. And she's talking about, you know, how you should be so busy that your grandkids have to like book you three weeks in advance to get, you know, to get a date with you because you're so busy, you know, that you shouldn't, you really shouldn't be finding your happiness by relying on other people, you need to be finding it in yourself. And I still, you know, I think even now we don't really have that that message to older women very prevalent in the culture. Yeah, speaking to that, I was also so interested in, you know, this is such a great example of like, when I was in J school, uh, they used to always talk about articles that have the like cocktail nuggets, you mm-hmm. know, or like the little things that you're just like, I read this fascinating piece today. And did you know? <laughs> and, and so, and I think there are so many cool tangents that you're able to go down in this book to in service of this point, you know, it, and one of them that I was really fascinated about was this kind of capsule history of the self-help industry, mm. which is just so, it's so hilarious to be sitting in this. And I mean, like, I'm guilty of so many things, like, whatever, guilty is debatable, I guess. But, like, you know, I meditate, and I do that, you know, and I go to yoga and all of that. And then to, like, listen to, like, these decades-old authors talking about actualization and, you know, like, you you draw the comparison between, like, the present-day idea of the secret, like, those sorts of bestsellers that are just, like, regurgitating the same messages that we, we're still offering to one another. Yeah, I was... I found it really fascinating to write about self-help because you do have to kind of check yourself. And I certainly did to try to think about, you know, it's very easy to write about self-help as a sort of you know, intellectual person in a very dismissive way and to sort of make fun of, well, not even make fun of, but just sort of, you know, this is a 
this is a kind of this is like trash spiritualism or something. This is like low rent. It's very, it's, you know, it's dumb. It's cheap. It's kind of, it's full of hucksters. It's trying to cheat people out of money and pull the wool over people's eyes. And I think, you know, there's, that is definitely a very big part of the story. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, but I still read women's magazines and find like comfort and inspiration in them. And I always have, you know, there is something very appealing about, you know, the message that you can, you know, organize your closets and then your life will be so much better. (laughs) And like the language of um, self-help now, I mean, I think a lot of these books are that, I think that term is kind of sort of degraded. Like I think they, things get shelved maybe differently now, but you know, I talk about Marie Kondo and the whole like decluttering organization craze. All of that is self-help. It's all couched in the language of spiritual purification and lightening of your load and kind of resisting the influx of uh, of materialist sort of overkill. It's all the same kind of language. And And going back to the 30s, it's really extraordinary how much how much emphasis there was on like you as an individual can overcome your circumstances by being um you know by digging down into yourself and by becoming your brand and by like becoming you know convinced of your own success and this whole like the success mantras were just like everywhere and you look back on it you know, as a historian, you look back on it and you're like, but you know, people had no no chance. You know, the economy was not something you could fix by thinking positive. But it's extraordinary how deep that runs, I think, in American culture in that period and now as well. Yeah, because even to see that cycle of, you know, that attitude following the Great Depression and then the modern version of that attitude following the Great Recession and, you know, the sort of present moment that we're in now where it's, it is rebounding, but, you know, our economy is changing and the way that people earn their money is changing so dramatically. And to kind of then take the fear from that and focus it into, you know, we'll just think about your brand positively. And, you know, there's so much that still, that resonates in the way that those messages are delivered now. Yeah. And you, you have very similar, like, sort of romanticization of disappearing blue-collar industries uh, and a kind of big, you know, political kind of push to try to salvage these industries and not recognize that the world of work is changing so much and, you know, so many of, you know, and, and the way that the world of work is so gendered as well. I mean, that was the thing that I think I didn't fully appreciate how explicit that was mm-hmm. before the... 1960s when it was outlawed, but you would literally have, you know, jobs for women, jobs for men. Classified ads were divided that way. And you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get a different, you know, if you were a man who had been laid off from a steel industry, from the steel industry, you couldn't, you know, become a teacher, like, mm. like a primary school teacher or something. Right, so it was it just like, no, yeah. yeah. So it was like men were much harder hit by the depression. Um, because of those industrial trades being the ones that were really, really, um, really, really hit. So it was just, you know, and so it was extraordinary sort of women were going out to work, but like women's work has never, you know, mythologized and valorized in the same kind of ways. You know, there's armies of, you know, single women who were keeping the economy going by 
getting hired in offices and getting hired in like all kinds of sort of menial and part-time and low status jobs as they were in 2008 as well. You know, that's what is keeping the economy going and keeping families together and keeping people alive, but it doesn't get um doesn't get mythologized, doesn't get kind of, you know, supported and celebrated in the same way as the traditionally male work does. What was it like for you just personally as you kind of put this story together and saw you know, because in a certain sense, it is seeing how little has changed in the sense that, like, we're still fighting for so many basic things that we've been <laughs> fighting for for so long. And I just uh, I, I just would like to hear about kind of how you, you know, how you feel about how you felt when you were doing this research of, you know, because I can imagine it could be a little bit demoralizing to think like, oh, this feels familiar. Yeah, it's it's funny how... Yeah, you get very caught up in the the history, but then the obviously the culture, the the moment that you're writing in affects it as well and affects what you're looking for and what you you know, the questions you're asking. And so yeah, I think when I when I started researching it, so I, I started around about two thousand eight when's when I got the first copy of the book and it was right obviously in the in the moment of the of the recession and I was very much interested in the sort of self-help and economic world of this. I was very interested in the fact that this was hap- like that Marjorie Hillis was writing during the depression that this book that celebrates, you know, pleasure and buying stuff as a legitimate way of making yourself feel good was a kind of a pretty radical and surprising thing to be doing at that time. So I was very focused on sort of the economic situation and I wasn't really thinking about it as a feminist story as much. You know, I sort of felt in 2008, you know, it it felt like that, like the feminist angle had been, was not the the one that was on the top of, you know, at the forefront of the way everyone was thinking about it. And then, you know, and then over the past year and my God, over the past week, you know, I really feel like suddenly it's, you know, once again, we're in the thick of a, some kind of feminist revolution or right. at least people are starting to feel like that's necessary again and yeah and I sort of have been looking again at, at Marjorie Hillis and realizing that thinking about her more as a feminist which is what not really how I I sort of approached it at the at the beginning right um but yeah I I, I think that that message of figuring out what you want and then finding a way to get it <laughs> at the very simplest level that's what her message is about and it's surprising to me how difficult that still is for women to to say it out loud and then to go after it and especially when it is not what people around you want you to do I want to back up a little bit and talk about kind of where you were coming from when you got the book and started on this project. So you have a PhD in literature and you had studied, uh, or you, your area of research was, um, was post-World War One, right? Yeah. Um, and so were you doing more kind of cultural history at that point? Did you, like, you know, were you interested in, in writing a biography? Did this? Well, 
I didn't have a PhD at the time. I oh, was okay. in the thick of <laughs> yeah. writing. Yeah. Um, so yes, I wrote my dissertation was about um, World War One and its aftermath and the literary and like physical commemoration of the war, which was fascinating and really mostly quite depressing. Um, so Marjorie Hillis at the beginning was like a, a way of cheating on my dissertation. Mm. It was a way of kind of getting you know, getting some sort of pleasure and um, into my life and also thinking as I was coming to the end of grad school and had no idea what I was going to do next, but I was thinking about, you know, where am I going to get a job and where am I going to have to move to? And, you know, I'm single and am I going to be moving to like, you know, the various different places that I had interviews with for schools in like Jacksonville, Florida and and like Milwaukee and I was like how could I make, you know, my independent fun cool life in these places. And you know, they all seemed, you know, they all seemed equally strange but equally distant. And and it just was a very kind of strange time where I I felt like I knew what was going to happen for the next 6 months, but I didn't know beyond that it was a complete mystery to me. Um, and obviously, I'm not American, so I would also have to get a job for in order to stay in the country. And so that was another angle that was constantly sort of obsessing me. And I was like, would I go back to England? Um, so I really just didn't know where I was <laughs> at all. So my research, um, my dissertation research was kind of its own, uh, was taking me down a particular path, but then the the research I was doing into Marjorie Hillis was really pulling me in a different direction. And I realized, you know, I had actually had this debate with my dissertation advisors a lot about whether I was writing cultural history or whether I was writing literary criticism. And I, they kept trying to stop me doing too much cultural history. They're like, you still have to write about, you know, major literary figures. You can't just write about. I'm like, yeah, but this poem is so weird and it was really popular and everyone like recited it, but no one now has heard of this poet, but you know, he was hugely influential and they're like, yeah, that's not that's not what that's we not your point. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what you're gonna get a job. You're not gonna get a job like teaching that in a lit survey class in like wherever. So I was just kind of like you know, cultural history was always a little bit of the um kind of secret self-indulgence that, mm. <laughs> that I was doing on the side. Um, but hopefully there's a way that they'll come together at some point. But that was, that was where I was at the time. By the time you were working on this project, you know, and uh, we'll go back and slow down and go through all these steps, but, you know, when you've got a deal and you've got an agent and you've got an editor, and, you know, did you feel then like, oh, I have made, like, a turn in where I thought my career was going? Or were you just kind of still keeping was it did it feel like a side project it did for a long time um i got and it was also kind of i didn't quite know like i knew there was a story here but i also didn't know whether i had enough um material because there isn't you know i i wasn't able to find like a family archive or anything that really you know the the archive that i used primarily for um for this was Marjorie Hillis's publisher, um, you know, there's a lot of documentation there. There was a lot of correspondence. And a lot of the way I wanted to write about it was sort of the um, the kind of cultural impact of this book as much as about her life. Um, so I was trying to, so it's 
started out as a biography for want of a better model or a better term. Um, but then when I started discussing it with my agent, um, she was like, yeah, no, we're not going to sell this as a biography. <laughs> there just, you know, there isn't enough. And also biographies of unknown people are a very tough sell. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, that makes total sense. I mean, it makes sense to me now as a reader, you know, you don't, it's difficult to get invested in the life of someone you've never heard of. And I wasn't able to find any kind of like, you know, she was secretly Ernest Hemingway's lover or something like that. You know, there's no connection with like famous people that was strong enough that I could kind of, you know, she... Sex it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. I could be like, oh yeah, the secret, you know, lover of this person or the uh, inspiration for X figure or something. So I just wasn't able to find that. And, um, and also I didn't really want to do the kind of traditional sort of trot through the life kind of biography because I feel like it's not as you know what was primarily interesting about her is that writing this book is right. how, how this book um, came to be and as a someone with my background in literature I was really interested in as like as a book as a kind of as a the impact that it had but also in the way that it was written and the kind of the culture of the literary culture around it so that was kind of my angle but yeah, it went through a few different kind of phases, a different sort of versions, um, and actually, in figuring out who was going to, you know, which publisher I was going to go with, the one that I, you know, the wonderful, wonderful Livright um, people, I went with partly because they, they sort of took it as as I had conceived it. Um, there were some other publishers I talked to who wanted it. Like, okay, this is like a smaller part of what we really want is a history of like single women in this whole time period. Or, you know, and I was, there's other, you know, there are other books that were kind of doing something similar at the, at the time. So I just didn't want to do a history of single women. I didn't want to get away from Marjorie Hillis. I felt like she was really the story, she and her books. And so the, the version, what this actually, the book that that I wrote ended up being kind of the book that I wanted to write, which I think is a rare privilege. <laughs> I think a lot of people move away or from that original idea, but this one was kind of pretty, um, pretty close to what I wanted from yeah. the beginning. Yeah, and I think you—that's a really good point that you bring up about you do have to, you know, however you have to get there, you have to be strong enough about what it is that you want because you will talk to people who like want to put their spins on it and if you're you know like I, I've definitely had ideas that you know in retrospect I I look at and think like oh well I didn't like this wasn't something that I like really cared about or really conceived thoroughly but so then because of that you know some you know you would have conversations where editors would be like well you know what if we did this and I'm just like okay yeah sure do you want to do that yeah you know you yeah. kind of get in those conversations and you just want to be everybody's best date and oh you have to kind of step back and think is that the book that I want uh and I think that yeah it's a, it's a really important piece of advice to kind of stay have mm -hmm. that kind of north star of what you want to create. Yeah, I mean, my first conversation with, with my agent was exactly that. And she was really like, you have to write the book you want to write. And at the time, it's like, I will write the book that anyone right. wants to buy. I do not care. <laughs> like, What do they want? I'll give it to them. And then you realize you get rejections and you get comments back from editors and nothing makes, no, nothing, there's no through line, right? There's right. no like, oh, it needs to be this book because 
17 editors said no to this other thing. It's like they all say completely contradictory things and you can't rework it for a specific editor, right? Because you only actually know that after they've said no. So it's like, that's helpful, but you can't re, you know, you're not reworking it for somebody because they've already said no. So right. it's kind of like you have to, you know, you can't rework it for an imaginary ideal editor. You know, what you end up, you come around to is like, well, this is the book that I can write. This is the book that I want to write. And this is how I think this book should be. And, you know, and you just try to stay as close to that as right. you can. Right. Yeah. And, and find an editor who wants to work with it on its own terms. Yeah, exactly. And I want to hear how you approached that, you know, because I know I I remember this proposal. Like, I remember how long you were working on this. And, and people might not know, but, you know, when you write a nonfiction book, you have to, I mean, you have to do a fair, you have to include a fair amount of sample work into a proposal. You don't have to write the whole thing. Like, you have to write a fiction manuscript or a poetry manuscript. But you were doing a lot of research on your own dime, in your own time, for for quite a long time. Yeah, it was a long time because I was, um, you know, I finished the PhD and then I was teaching um, at Columbia for a couple of years and then I was freelancing and teaching and just, you know, you do a bunch of other things to keep yourself afloat and keep yourself, and in my case, to stay in New York. Um, But yeah, it was, um, there was a lot that I had to kind of, believe was worth doing you know when you go out and do you know this is work that no one's paying you to do and no one is um you know there's there's no immediate payoff but you're sort of doing it out of sheer faith and yeah and I had different versions of it and I reworked sort of early chapters and was trying to work out the structure of the whole thing and that's the that's the tricky part the standard sort of non-fiction um, structure is like generally two sample chapters and then an outline that's pretty thorough and detailed of like what the rest of it's going to be and um, you know other kinds of supporting materials a sort of overview and like you end up writing a million different versions of kind of the overview of the thing um, which is the hardest which is thing really to hard. write like yeah. I mean it's essentially the like you have to have written the book to write a, a thorough overview really mm-hmm. Yeah, and like the introduction, which I was I completely rewrote and then rewrote again when I'd finished the manuscript, and it's just like this is completely different, you know, because it does even with a pretty tight structure, which I mostly kept to, it still became a very different book, and those later chapters went in different directions because I had less to go on in terms of um, Hillis's story, and it was also more important to me to sort of think about the culture around her and. Yeah, but you end up having, yeah, you have to do a lot of research. And, you know, the New York Public Library is an incredible resource that gave me, you know, workspace, gave me, you know, research help. And really, like, that was an amazing, you know, that's that's the kind of thing. Like, I couldn't have done this if I was in a place where I didn't have access to a research library like that. Um, and the fact that anyone can use it is just incredible to me so it was yeah the the public library really got this done (laughs) everybody support your public library seriously (laughs) (laughs) uh and i think you know i i just want to zero in quickly on what you mentioned in passing about 
getting getting less on her at toward the end, so kind of having to to fill that in more. And I think you handle that really deftly. You know, now that I know that that's what was what was kind of going on in the background um, with your on the writing end, uh, because she does kind of fade. Her voice fades out, and so you use that as an opportunity to say, okay, well, she's quiet. And what is she quiet about? This is the stuff that's happening around her, and she's kind of not participating. So even, like, her absence, like, the kind of negative space of her is still there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a great way to think about it, and I hope, I'm hope i glad that sort of worked and came through. Um, but, yeah, she definitely was, you know, she got married in 1939, and there's a flurry of articles that, you know, are kind of pointing fingers and laughing at the fact that she's, ah, she didn't really like it after all. You know, there she is, married. Um, but, you know, I, I make the point that she made, you know, she got married when she was 49. You know, she got married because she wanted to get married to this one guy, not because she wanted to have a family or have a traditional sort of married life. I think it's a very different thing to marry for the first time, you know, in your late 40s compared to marrying for the first time in your 20s. And so, but yeah, she she, she kind of went quiet. Um, she didn't write anything, didn't publish anything during the decade that she was married. And afterwards she writes about how she kind of learned to become this much more dependent mm. person. She married someone who was much wealthier than she was and, and she kind of, you know, she enjoyed that period of being sort of part of a couple and but sort of adjusting yourself to your husband's, what your husband likes and who his friends are and all of that kind of, um, you know, that process of adjustment is pretty um, profound. And that's why when she comes back and writes this book for widows, she says, don't get remarried. <laughs> you know, she really is like, it's too much work to like fit yourself to someone else's life. Um, if you're going to do it, go all in and do it once, but don't do it again. Yeah. Yeah, it was really stunning for me to kind of you know because she she is this very spunky kind of very uh spunky is is maybe a little bit of a like infantilizing <laughs> term but you know she's very she's very bold she's very uh you know individualistic or whatever but then you know she tells that anecdote about uh her husband writing out these very detailed uh, him, you know, she wants to go run some errands, and she has to explain to him in precise detail where she wants to go, and he regurgitates all of that to the chauffeur and coordinates their route so that she's never even like crossing the street. So the car is always picking her up on the right side of the street, and you say, you know, she chose to be flattered by that, and I was yeah. just like, that doesn't like that is a real that's a real like swallowing of something, you know, to feel like the the person that was that I was reading about up until that point. I, that was a little stunning for me that she was just like, okay. Yeah, it's really, it's it's kind of extraordinary Like she that she sort of writes about that, that sort of explicitly and talks about this idea that, you know, she was willing to be wrapped in cotton wool, I think is her metaphor. And then, and then she, and like by the end of it, she thinks she needs to be wrapped in cotton wool. Like she says, she think you know she starts to think of herself as a delicate creature, um, and it's really remarkable to me how she's very she's able to tell you that story in such a way that you know it's it's out of love for her husband. <laughs> you know she knows yeah. that it's coming from this loving place, but yeah, it really is an extraordinary 
moment. And, you know, she's like, she's like, I grew up in Brooklyn. I know where I'm going. And he's like, no, I just don't want, you know, I don't want you to cross the street. And he's like, really? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. she, you know, and, and yeah, and I think it's, you know, in, in a sense, I think there's an extraordinary, again, like, like pragmatic and very kind of, you know, realistic sort of, you know, she understands where he's coming from and she chooses to mm-hmm. submit to it, to it, sort of acquiesce to it. And, you know, and I think she's, I think she's sincere in saying that she was very, very happy. You mm-hmm. know, she's very happy for those 10 years, but there is kind of a sense of, you know, the intensity with which she talks about never doing it again <laughs> is quite telling. Yeah. <laughs> Right. You know, and the extent of the adjustment, the depth of the adjustment, I think, is really um, powerful. And you do, I mean, it, you realize it. I mean, this is, I, I think I read that with a lot more sympathy now that, you know, I met my husband, um, like, what, six months after I met Marjorie Hillis? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I met him the following year. And it was, you know, that process of adjustment, I think, you know, I had gone through something similar. You know, I think by the time I read that, I was more sympathetic to to her because you do, you know, get to a point where you're sort of used to having someone around and having been, you know, I had been single for my whole adult life before I met Tony and I was just very used to being independent and thinking right. about myself in that way. And it is a kind of, you know, and I, remember thinking like I'll never get used to this like yeah. it's just never it's never going to seem normal to have somebody else in my space yeah like this you know it just is never and now it completely feels normal right and it's you know it happens by degrees and you don't notice it but it was really kind of that was an interesting thing where I was like have I adjusted like that like is that something that's happened to me and I'm sure it is you know, right and I of, mean you know. you know and that is marriage to a certain yeah. extent yeah absolutely uh yeah to just kind of see I mean that was a very obviously very stark example kind right of, <laughs> you know of suiting fitting its time and everything uh I want to um I want to talk to you about how you researched and how you organized your research. You know, how did you note take as you went along? I'm sure you were just buried by <laughs> articles and books and uh, different references. And how did you keep track of everything just on a practical level? Um, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is what happens when you research something over the course of many years and half the time you're not really researching it. So it's kind of like a fun back burner project that you're not fully taking seriously. Um, it took me a long time and, you know, and I would have these, you know, I would be chasing up references and I'm like, I've quoted something and then it's gone into nine versions of this thing. And then I'm like, where did I actually read that? And I had to go and like in the process of proofreading and copy editing, I was going back and trying to chase up these references. And I'm like, I have no idea where I found oh, that God. quote. And it's like, I know I quoted it accurately because I'm like conscientious like that, yeah. but I'm not conscientious. I just didn't write down where it came from. Or it's like, I'm like, oh my God, this stuff is, uh, you know, so you end up having to go back, again, going back to the library or back to like ProQuest or whatever and doing all these like um, searches and trying to, it's trying to reverse engineer things for you, um, you know. And over that time, you know, that I went back to I did some research at the Brooklyn Historical Society, which has the 
records of Marjorie's father, who was a prominent, um, who headed up the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, which is a very uh, prominent historic church. Henry Ward Beecher was the uh, pastor there, like a, two people ahead of him. And um, so his papers were at Brooklyn Historical, and I looked at them for the first time years ago. It was kind of a summer, I was like, summer project. I'm like, I'm going to go and just see what they have and see what I can find. And uh, then I went back in the process of editing and they completely changed the, like they reorganized them and it wasn't what I remembered. And I couldn't find some things that I was convinced were there. And they had photographs that they'd like reshelved somewhere and then couldn't find. And I was just like, you know, having become more used to like doing historical research um, through my job now at the New York Historical Society, like I know how history and I know how archives like that sort of can work and get divided up and things get moved around. And but I didn't really realize, take that into account. And I was like, it's not just that I might have mislaid a reference; it's that they might have just something might have just gotten gone astray. And I was just like, it's not these things aren't stable, so you have to right. kind of really. Um, yeah, I was like, I need to get better at like taking photographs of everything, keeping track of everything. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was a little bit of, you know, trying to just sort of throwing everything on a pile and then trying to go through the pile and bring some order to it, which I should have done at the beginning and then <laughs> didn't. And are you writing? Well, do you write while you research, or do you hit a point where you think you can't research anymore and then start writing? Oh, I definitely write while I research. Yeah, yeah I've always, I've never been able to do, to go back and forth like that. I, I also do one and finish and mm -hmm. then stop because I don't think you ever finish researching. <laughs> there's always something else to, there's always some other lead to follow. Um, and I can't, I don't know what I'm doing unless I'm writing. I don't know what I'm looking for really. So I definitely write along the way. Um, I actually, for the final version of this, I um, I went back to Scrivener, which I had used, which I know that people had have talked about a lot. And it's, um, yeah, I found that incredibly useful. Yeah. Um, I didn't probably use all of the versions of it, but um, I don't know if you've seen like um, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I have. Uh, does yes. his like screenshots yes. of his Scrivener Yeah, I know. And he's layout. got some like real advanced Scrivener use. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that it could. You know, she, he like uses it in four dimensions in right. some way. And yeah. I'm just like, okay, I've got to find a way to like. But I was talking about codes as per usual, transcend yeah. space. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're just, it's his world. We just live in it. But, um, but yes, yeah, so that kind of, that was like inspiring. I was yeah. Like, okay. I could, I can probably do more. So yes, I definitely used, I used Scrivener as a, as a practical tool and that's really helpful. Um, but in terms of keeping organized, I mean, you know, you just have to, you just have to keep yourself to like a task. I mean, it, it comes back to this question of like organization and sort of it, it comes back to the problem of like taking seriously what you're doing. Mm. And it took me a really long time to take seriously what I was doing with this. Even after I was working with my agent, even after I had like published a couple of like excerpts and little pieces of this, even after, you know, honestly, even after I got the book deal, it was still like, you still have to wake up in the morning and like remind yourself that it's real and actually 
work on it and and let yourself work on it even though it doesn't feel any different to be working on it like with a deal and a deadline really than it does to be working on it as like here's this weird little project this side project that I have going on that is just a break from my dissertation research you know and you have to like realizing that it's real is like in you it's not in the project and and like trusting that you are actually writing and actually researching and it's for a purpose yeah yeah absolutely this was something that i started at a certain point kind of just policing even the way i spoke about projects i was working on like that um i mean this this show to a certain extent you know early on i'd say well it's just this thing i'm doing on the side but you know you're you internalize that idea of just like oh it's this little it's this little lark mm-hmm. that you're doing and then it really does change the way that you allow yourself to approach it and and dedicate time and space to it yeah i mean i think there's you know there's something good about that and that gives you takes some of the pressure off so you don't you know you actually can start it and actually can do it but yeah but then I, you know, you got to put it, I needed more pressure <laughs> and I needed the pressure of like, telling myself that it was, it was really going to happen. And, uh, you know, having an editor like cracking the whip over you and saying like, no, I, no, I need this actual chapter. And like, you know, and I'd be like, well, here's kind of a draft. And she's like, no, that's the chapter. And I'm like, oh, can I just, do I, so I don't get any time to completely rewrite it and completely restart it. And she's like, no, <laughs> it has to be done. And the when it came to the the writing, uh, you you know you had mentioned the structure and settling on the structure, which is pretty linear across her kind of bibliography. Was that always the way you were intending to approach it? Yeah, I mean, I figured that. Yeah, that I wanted to focus on the books and sort of you know I. This is also like in terms of how you talk about it. <laughs> a long time I was like, it's not a biography. It's not a biography, and of course it's biographical. It's but it's not structured like her childhood, her you know adolescence and then the journey to the book because the book is the important thing um the book that she wrote so i start there and i start with that and i try to imagine like what that would have been like and what that um you know what it meant to have a bestseller at that point in time and yeah really fun kind of fun to find out what that actually meant and what what a bestseller actually was and these self-help books sold in like numbers that you just can't even believe <laughs> i can't remember now what the figures were but you you adjusted her uh royalties her early royalties into modern money and it's astonishing how it was like a, yeah. a couple hundred thousand dollars like right off the bat right? yeah and she basically made i mean she's working um she was working at vogue um as an editor had been there for about 25 years when the book came out and she worked there for about six more months and then she quit because her royalties in the first like three months of the book came out were I think what at least her annual salary if not like more than her annual salary um and she didn't get an advance for the book um so it was all in royalties um and yeah like I remember talking to my editor about it when I went in and I was meeting with her and she said you know I was like oh yeah and she I think she sold like a hundred thousand copies in the first like uh first couple of months and and like katie fell off her chair (laughs) i was like is that a lot she's like yeah Yeah. that's a lot (laughs) like that's a lot of and i was like okay yeah i mean i guess yeah i guess it is but but you know it pales in comparison to what 
like Dale Carnegie's sure. uh, book was selling, but she was she was on the top of the bestseller lists. Um, I just again, like you were talking about this little nuggets. I love that um, in 1936, this book was the like on the nonfiction bestseller lists at the same time as um, Gone with the Wind was like the fiction bestseller, and I just thought that combination is really fascinating yeah. to me. Like what kind of narratives about like women and and the home and like independence are kind of going on and like that those two books can be like the parallel bestsellers of the year um so that was just always like a fun thing i was like that's that's just a curious coincidence yeah yeah that was great do you have a new project do you know what you're gonna do now you know, I don't have a new project yet. Um, Has I, this made you want to never write another book again <laughs> is another question. No, it's made me really want to be in the process of, of figuring out a project. I actually, um, I just uh, mentioned my um, my job at the museum and I actually, as this book came out, I just um, opened, I was co-curating an exhibition that just opened um, that is about the radical Greenwich Village in the 19-teens and its, like, relationship to the suffrage movement. Um, it's called Hotbed. You should all go see it. You should all go. <laughs> um, it was a wonderful experience uh, to do that, like, amazing kind of learning experience. But there are so many stories in there in that period. There's really some fascinating women who have had, most of whom have had a biography written about them but are not, certainly not, household names and I'm sort of looking into in that era in that that time um and also my dissertation research which was about the aftermath of World War 1 you know I do think there's a lot of really interesting kind of the the place of World War 1 in like American culture especially mm. I think is really interesting like I it's so central to British kind of cultural history but Americans don't like so many things happened as a result of World War One, that we just don't really think of as being connected to that war. So that would be fun to yeah. And go I feel into. like there is a, there is a kind of renewed interest in World War One right now in America to think mm-hmm. to look at it in terms of how can it help us understand our current moment. Yeah, and like and just you know how it was used to crack down on so many kind of left wing and radical sort of groups and right. all that America first stuff like comes out of that period and it's really yeah it's kind of chilling (laughs) yeah yeah um the last question i want to ask you uh is the last question i ask everybody which is what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now that is really interesting um creative satisfaction funnily enough i think means to me knowing when to let go it's i you know i feel like having this, this book and the exhibition sort of running alongside each other and in both cases for so long I was just like well this is what I would do differently this is what I should change this is the part I think is you know this is wrong this is something else I didn't explain that well you know I think about all of the things I could have done differently and better and there comes a point where you have to just like put it down put it out in the world and like let other people experience it and just letting go of control over the thing I think is it's terrifying but I think that's actually been really satisfying to kind of get to the point where I'm like you know what it's not mine anymore it's like belongs to everyone (laughs) 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.